Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. Let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. From Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgivest the iniquity of my sin. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place, thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me So lift up your hearts. Let us pray. O Lord Jesus Christ, wisdom of God the Father, give us understanding and inform us with thy precepts. Guide us with thine eye in the way we go, that under thy leading we may surely come to thee who art the way, the truth, and the life. Wherefore we say, Glory be to the Father, the Lord, to whom we confess our sins. Glory be to the Son, the way wherein we shall go. Glory be to the Holy Ghost who informs us and teaches us, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And amen. Amen. We continue to work our way through the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We've been studying the doctrine of sin, and we come now to question 16. So let's read this together, then consider its truth. Question 16 asks, Did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? Answer, The covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. We arrive now in the catechism to the difficult doctrine of original sin, original sin. So questions 16 to 19 will elaborate on what original sin is and what its consequences are. But we begin here by confessing something that scripture makes us to say and that Americans are loath to confess. Namely, that when Adam sinned in the garden, we sinned with him. This principle is taught explicitly by the Apostle Paul in both Romans 5.12 and 1 Corinthians 15.21-22. And there he draws analogies between being either in Christ Or in Adam. In Adam we die. In Christ we are made alive. In Adam death reigns. In Christ resurrection conquers. 
This principle of being found in or with someone else can go by various names. Amongst the Reformed, we call it a federal headship or covenantal headship. You'll hear uh, federal, covenantal, these terms thrown around. But the principle is the same, namely that Adam and Christ are unique representatives for everyone who is connected to them. So to give you an example, uh, just as we have elected representatives, senators who go to Washington, D.C. and vote on our behalf, so also Adam stood in the Garden of Eden as a representative for all who would come from his flesh. Uh, To give you another example of this principle, uh, consider the fact that by virtue of being born in America, if you were, uh, you are regarded as an American citizen. None of us chose where we would be born. Our parents did. And yet we inherit from that birth various privileges, responsibilities, and consequences like taxes of being an American. Furthermore, we have an elected head of state who makes decisions for our nation. So if the president declares war on China, that means we, insofar as we are Americans, are at war with China, even if we personally are against such a war. This basic distinction between our personal choice and our representatives' actions for us is similar to the distinction that we make between what we call actual sin versus original sin. Actual sin are those sins that we personally and willfully commit, whereas original sin is the sin nature that we inherit from Adam. You can think of original sin as giving us our last name, the last name Sinner. Because Adam's last name is Sinner or Covenant Breaker, so is ours. We're descended from him. Original sin is the lack of original righteousness and holiness that we once possessed in the garden before the fall. In scripture, it is sometimes called flesh or carnal nature and refers to the disordered tendency that all of us have to sin. As depressing as the doctrine of original sin is, God has not left us in this sorry state. In Christ, God offers us a new representative. We are offered a new federal covenantal head. And the promise of the gospel is that anyone who puts their faith in Jesus is transferred from the old race in Adam to the new race in Jesus Christ. And therefore... Whatever Jesus does as Lord of the church, we are reckoned as doing also. For he is the head, we are his body. If Christ is righteous, then so are you. If God delights and loves his son, the Lord Jesus, and is pleased with him, then God also loves and delights in and is pleased with you. For it is by faith, faith in Christ, that we bring pleasure to our Father. To contemplate this truth should remind us of our need to confess our sins. So as you're able, let us kneel before the Lord. Father, we confess all of these sins to you in Jesus' name, and amen. amen. Let us rise for the assurance of God's pardon. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen. But we are risen and stand For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west... So far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's covenant church, because you have confessed your sins holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. 
Our sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 34 to 38. These are the words of God. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let us pray. Father, we are challenged. We are challenged by these words of the Lord Jesus to pick up our cross and follow him. Help us as we seek to be obedient to your will and kindle in us the gift of true and divine love such that we also can endure every suffering with joy. We ask for your Holy Spirit now in Jesus' name. And amen. Amen. Once upon a time, there was a man named Damos. Damos. Damos was a friend and companion of the Apostle Paul. Paul mentions him by name at the end of his letter to uh, the Colossians and his letter to uh, Philemon. He writes in Colossians 4.14, Luke, the beloved physician, and Damos greet you. He says to Philemon in Philemon 23:24, There salute thee Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, Marcus, Aristarchus, Damos, Lucas, my fellow laborers. So who is Damos? Damos was a fellow laborer with Paul in the gospel. He was what we would call a professing Christian, a man who served the Lord and even assisted the apostle. He was probably a pastor of some kind. And yet, at the very end of Paul's life, this is what he writes uh, just before his death to Timothy. He says to Timothy, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, for Damas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica. Luke alone is with me. Those are some of the last words that we have of the Apostle Paul uh, before he dies. There were roughly seven years before what Paul wrote in Colossians and Philemon and what he wrote at the end of 2 Timothy. What happened in those seven years to Damas' faith? What changed in him? How did he go from being called a fellow laborer with Paul to forsaking him? How did he go from appearing to love God to actually loving this present world? Paul says, having loved this present world, he departed unto Thessalonica. We can only guess at the reasons for Damas' apostasy. We are not told exactly what seduced him. Perhaps there was a woman in Thessalonica. Perhaps there was a lucrative job opportunity that he just could not turn down in Thessalonica. Or perhaps he just got tired of the missionary life, of persecution, of 
troubles. And he thought, you know, I've put in my years of service. I deserve a little me time. Whatever the specific reasons for Deimos abandoning the faith, they are fittingly described under the heading, having loved this present world. Or, to take the words of the Lord Jesus, Deimos, having gained the world, lost his soul. Deimos, like Judas, is a cautionary tale. He is a warning sign for all of us who believe to take heed to what is actually in your heart, to not be self-deceived. Take heed to what it is. Be honest with yourself. What do you truly love and value? What do you truly treasure? For as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. Let him be accursed. The Apostle John, likewise, in 1 John 2.15 says, If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So what do you love? What do you love? What do you prize and delight in? What really makes you happy? Is it God and the contemplation of his ineffable beauty? Is it Christ and the loveliness that he bestows on creatures? Is it the new heavens and new earth and the glories of the world that is to come? Or are your affections stuck down here, just wanting the next weekend, the next meal, the next episode of your favorite show? Are your affections fixed upon God, or are they stuck in this present world that is fading away like a vapor? So what do you love? And more so, What are you willing to sacrifice in order to get that thing you love? This is the question. This is the question that Jesus impresses upon his disciples at this stage in the journey, and he cuts straight to the heart. These are hard words. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is the challenge the Lord Jesus issues if you want to live forever. This is the way of the Lord, and it is the only way unto salvation. And so this morning, I want to look at uh, three things that Jesus says we must do if we would live forever, if we would avoid becoming cautionary tales like Deimos. So I'll give you those three things up front. The first thing is you must deny yourself and all that comes with it. Second, you must lose your life for Christ. And third, you must be unashamed of his word. You must deny yourself. You must lose your life. You must be unashamed of his word. So starting in verse 34, let's work through our text together. Mark says, And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Notice first, who Jesus is addressing. This is not one of his private uh, discussions with the, the disciples, it says, and when he called the people unto him with his disciples also. So this is addressing the crowd. This is a call to everyone. This call to self-denial, then, is not limited to apostles. It's not limited to missionaries or pastors, but rather extends to every single person who professes the Lord Jesus. If you call yourself a Christian, well, these words apply to you. Christianity 
is a religion of ultimate ends, of death and resurrection. Christianity is not merely a plan for moral or social reform, though it will demand that your morals and society change. Christianity is a religion that will not let you in unless you die first. Think about what the initiation rite is to get into this religion. Right? How do you become a Christian? Well, you profess, you are baptized, and you publicly renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil. The Christian life begins with a so long farewell to the self. And it is perfected as you continue in the apostles' words to die daily. To die daily. So everything Jesus says here applies across the board to all Christians, young and old, uh, male and female, whoever you are. Now, uh, what exactly is self denial? Well, in the immediate context here, Jesus is referring to a very literal death on a very literal cross. That's, that's where he is going. We must not forget that all of our metaphorical dying daily, our picking up our cross, our trials, must be grounded in a very real commitment to literally die on a literal cross for the Lord Jesus. That is the radical self-denial that Jesus calls us to. Torture and crucifixion was the fate for many Christians in the early church. History tells us that almost all of the apostles died painful and brutal deaths. Tradition holds that Peter was crucified upside down. James was beheaded. John was dropped into boiling oil, and he actually survived that. Other Christians were fed to lions. Others had their tongues cut out. Others were burned at the stake. You can read these martyrdoms in church history. And so for those who were hearing this message in the first century, uh, self-denial did not just mean uh, getting up early and skipping coffee. Self-denial was not just working out and taking a cold shower. The kind of self-denial that Jesus is calling people to is the kind of self-denial that might get you tortured and crucified by Caesar. Jesus is saying in sober terms that if you follow him, You must deny in yourself that most basic and natural desire to live and avoid suffering, right? What is more natural to you than this? You want to keep living. God created us with this natural desire to live forever. It is the essence of living things to desire to keep living. And therefore, the only way, the only way that you can soberly overcome the strongest natural desire there is, the desire to live, is for God to give you a supernatural desire for something greater, namely to attain unto the resurrection and a life of immortality. We tend to think of living in strictly biological and physical terms. If we are moving and breathing, then we are alive. And that is true insofar as it goes. But what God reveals to us in Holy Scripture is that uh, there are actually two kinds of life and also two kinds of death. There's two kinds of life and there are two kinds of death. There is physical death, which is the separation of the soul from the body. And there is physical life, where your body and soul are united. You're breathing. you're, You're moving. And then there is also spiritual death and spiritual life. Spiritual death is the soul's separation from God, and spiritual life is the soul's union with God. 
Think about uh, the original sin instance, the the fall of Adam and Eve, the fall of the human race. God uh, said very clearly to Adam that on the day that they ate from the forbidden tree, they would surely die. And yet, on the day they ate, they did not die physically. Adam went on to live for 930 years. Children, this is the chocolate question. How long did Adam live? 930 years. 930 years. Write it down. Come tell me that when I ask you before chocolate. I've been giving you guys freebies for like a year now, okay? (laughs) 930 years. I'm giving it to you. 930 years. Kids, listen up. Let's say it all together. How old was Adam when he died? He was 930 years. Good. All right. You earned it. Continuing on. How do we get on to this? Uh, So Adam lived for 930 years. He died when he was 930. And what kind of death then did Adam and Eve suffer in the garden? Well, they suffered spiritual death. Their soul was separated from God. They felt naked and ashamed now. It was this spiritual separation that eventually caused their physical death later on. Separation from God leads to the eventual separation of the soul from the body. Uh, To give you a very uh, kind of silly analogy, you can think of these two different kinds kinds of death, uh, kind of like the life and death of your cell phone. So you can think of spiritual death as when your phone gets unplugged from the charger in the wall, okay? So it's charged up, but as soon as you unplug it, now it's got however much, you know, 93%, that, that's how much you got. That's spiritual death. And then when your phone actually goes kaput because it runs out of charge, that's like physical death, okay? So if, if that was helpful to you, you're welcome. If not, then just forget it. So it's just an analogy. So, but, but the principle is that the spiritual death, the separation from God, from the outlet in the wall, um, is the thing that eventually causes your soul to depart from uh, your body. This is a principle that you find in Scripture. So when Jesus says, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, he is actually commanding you to subordinate your desire for physical life to the greater desire you have for spiritual life. In other words, more than the desire for your soul to continue to be united to your body, you must want your soul to be reunited to God. And it is only by being reunited with God that your soul will eventually be united with an immortal and resurrected body. So that's the undergirding logic of Jesus' argument and the logic of self-denial. You deny physical life so that you can have spiritual life. Now, uh, we might ask, what exactly is spiritual life? We said that it is the soul's union with God, but how does that union with God happen? Well, Jesus tells us in John 17, 3, the following, and this is life eternal. So this is spiritual life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Think about that. Spiritual life, eternal life is knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. The essence of spiritual life is the knowledge of God. And this kind of knowledge is a kind of knowledge that a husband and wife have in marriage, right? Adam knew his wife Eve, and the two became one flesh. This is the analogy that Paul picks up and develops into Christ and the church, right? 
for the human soul and the life of God. This is how we become, in the words of 2 Peter 1.4, partakers of the divine nature. We don't become God, but we are united to God by the knowledge of God. We remain distinct from God, like husband and wife are distinct persons, but we are joined to God in a spiritual union. This is why God invented marriage, so that you could think about marriage and then realize this is what the human soul and God are meant to be. They're meant to be united in the spiritual union. So it's by knowing and loving, loving God that we can be said to have eternal life abiding in us even now. If you presently know God and truly love him, then you already have eternal life abiding in you. And when that is true of you, suddenly self-denial and even a painful death becomes something that you can gladly embrace for the sake of Christ. In fact, death is changed from being something that you are afraid of to something that you welcome because death becomes now the doorway unto glory and it just fast tracks you to seeing God face to face. Just as a man who is in love will do anything for his beloved, so we are compelled by the loveliness of Christ to do anything for him. This is how long-term self-denial, even unto death, becomes possible. Love makes us into people who will gladly lay down our lives for Christ and his people. If only we can get more of him. So that's the first thing. You must deny yourself. You must take up your cross and follow Jesus. The second thing that we must do to persevere unto glory uh, is really the same thing, just with different words. You must lose your life for Christ. And in verses 35 to 37, Jesus gives us the divine logic for why everyone should do this. So here's uh, the basic argument for why everyone should become a Christian. Starting in verse 35, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Uh, I should note here, the words life and soul in this passage are the exact same uh, word in Greek, this word suke, and it appears that Jesus is continuing to play with this idea that there are two kinds of life and two kinds of death. There's natural and supernatural, temporal and eternal. So you could read verse 35 as saying this. I'll kind of fill in the blank here. For whosoever will save his natural life shall lose it, because you can't actually avoid natural death. But whosoever shall lose his natural life For my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it, in that he will be resurrected unto supernatural life. And then in verse 36, the question would be this. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And then here, soul could be either remaining spiritually dead or it could refer to physical death. But in either case, you end up with the exact same outcome, namely that you gain something that you can only enjoy for a very limited time. Death is going to take it away one way or another. Jesus then amplifies this by a further question in verse 37. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul or his life? In other words, from your perspective, what is the most valuable thing you have? Well, it's you. (laughs) 
It's your being, and you need a you to be able to enjoy anything at all. So I'll, I'll summarize Jesus' argument here in a, in a syllogism. So I'll give you two premises and then the conclusion. So here's the logic of the argument. So premise one is your soul is the most valuable thing you own or you have. Premise two is in order to save your soul, you must die and give it to God. Conclusion, therefore, in order to save your soul, you must die and give it to God. Okay, so that is the airtight logic of salvation. And the only thing that will keep someone from coming to that conclusion is a denial of premise one or premise two. So uh, you could deny premise one. You could deny that your soul is indeed precious and valuable. And uh, actually, as absurd as that sounds to us, this is what many people are taught today. You could deny that you have an immaterial soul. Uh, that, this is the logical conclusion of materialism and of evolution. And it is what millions of students are taught every year in our uh, tax-funded secular indoctrination centers that we call schools. Right? I did ministry on university campuses for many years, and it's amazing how many people will just deny that they have a soul. <laughs> like, they, they just don't want Christianity so much they're willing to deny something that uh, even pagans uh, used to know once upon a time, okay? So uh, the spirit of our age is to exalt ourselves as God, even if it means denying we have a soul. We want to make ourselves the ultimate arbiters of reality who form our own essence and create our own meaning in the universe. This is like Disney theology, right? Uh, The spirit of the age teaches that there is no loving creator who made you to know and love him. But it teaches that you are the creator. You can make yourself into whoever you want to be. You give meaning to your reality. Our world, our culture, places the existential burden of who we are and why we are here on the shoulders of the individual. And then we wonder why so many people are on antidepressants. You have no soul. You create your own meaning. You're graduated. Now go be happy. Right? This, this is what our schools are doing. This is what our culture is doing. That, of course, is not a burden that we were meant to carry And the longer our culture denies the answer to question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man, the longer our our culture will continue on this suicidal path. So you could deny what even the pagan Greek philosophers knew, namely that you have an immaterial and immortal soul. And if you deny that, well, uh, there's no soul that needs to be saved, no need for Jesus or his cross. That is one uh, potential way of avoiding the inevitable conclusion of Jesus' argument. Just deny you have a soul. Uh, Now, perhaps you are not so stupid. Perhaps you affirm that you have a soul and a precious one at that. You agree with premise one. Your soul is the most valuable thing you own. But where you have trouble is with premise two, that in order to save your soul, you have to die and give it to God. This is where most people falter and just outright reject Christianity. Unlike premise one, which you can arrive at from, uh, you don't need the Bible to arrive at the knowledge you have a soul, right? Aristotle knew that man had a rational soul. Uh, Premise two, though, requires you to believe the words of Jesus. You actually have to take it on faith that Jesus is not lying when he says this. 
You have to believe that Jesus is a credible source when he tells you this is the only way your soul can be saved. So the question becomes then, do you believe him? Everything hangs on that question. Do you believe the guy who walks on water and stops storms with just a word? Do you believe the guy who can heal the sick and touch lepers and raise the dead? Do you believe that guy or you believe what you read on the internet? Okay, this is the argument. You're going to appeal to someone's authority. Your own authority, what your parents told you, what someone on the internet told you, or are you going to believe the Lord Jesus? Do you believe him? Either Jesus is lying, or he is insane, or he is telling the truth. Do you believe Jesus? At the very least, everyone, everyone has to reckon with the fact that they are going to die. And so Jesus poses this question to all. What will it profit you? to gain everything you want, only to bring none of it with you when you die. Jesus is appealing to that most natural desire that is in you, the desire to live. And he is declaring that if you really want to keep on living, this is the only way. You have to die inside of Jesus and for Jesus. You have to die to this world and its pleasures. You have to actually hate the world if you really love your soul. So what are you willing to sacrifice in order to live forever? The cry of the regenerate heart, the born-again heart, is take the world. You can have it, but give me Jesus. Take my body and destroy it, but give me the knowledge of God. For he is eternal life and he is immortality. So if you want to live forever, you have to deny yourself And you must lose your life for Christ. Finally, in verse 38, Jesus warns us about one of the great temptations that we will all face if we are going to follow him. He says this, Whosoever, therefore, shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So the third thing that you must do if you want to live forever is you must be unashamed of God's word. How does the world silence Christians? What has been the most effective tool for gagging believers? Uh, In some times and places, it has been just overt persecution and murder of the saints. They cut out your tongue. They chop off limbs. They terrorize and intimidate the church into silence. Uh, This is a very effective method for silencing the church. And uh, these kinds of tactics are still being used today in places like China and in some uh, uh, Muslim-dominated regions. However, here in the West, uh, the primary tool for silencing Christians is just simple shame. Our world shames Christians for believing such silly nonsense as the Bible, that archaic and outdated book. There are many forms of public and even private shaming. Some of you have had your jobs and livelihoods threatened because of your Christian beliefs. There are all kinds of social, economic, and political pressures that are put on you to be ashamed of what the Bible says. It might be uh, the laws in Leviticus against 
homosexuality. It might be the laws in Exodus and Deuteronomy that regulate slavery. It might be the principle of male headship in both society and marriage. Or it might be the radical statement that there are only two genders, that from the beginning he made them male and female. Whatever it is that the world is shaming you for believing or you find yourself a little nervous about, uh, you must mortify that embarrassment in yourself. You have to be actually totally unashamed of every single word in Scripture, even if you don't quite understand how you would answer someone's objections. The world is going to shame you for believing the Bible, and you have to just own up front that you're, you're not going to be ashamed. Whatever it is that the world is shaming you for believing, you must not be ashamed of a single word. You might not yet understand why God says what he says about slavery or homosexuality or marriage, but you must never under any circumstance apologize for the word of God. That is what being ashamed of God's word looks like. And if you do that, Jesus says that God's going to be ashamed of you. Close with this. Shame is a very powerful force. Shame is also an inescapable concept. You're going to get shame in a world that has good and evil in it. Either the world is going to shame you for loving God and standing by his word, or God is going to shame you for loving the world and apologizing for his word. You're going to get shame either way. (laughs) So you should just pick being the recipient of shame from the world and not of God. Okay. This is the basic logic Jesus is setting forth. That's your choice. So who do you want shame from? Whose opinion of you do you care more about? What will give you the courage to stand firm, to not budge an inch when the world is shaming you, is the conviction that God's opinion is all that matters. When you care exclusively about what God thinks of you, that is when you know you have died to the world. Congratulations, you've now died to the world. You don't care what they think about you. When, when God's opinion is all that matters, that is when you know you have lost your life for Christ. This is something we have to continually do, right? There's going to be some point, some pressure point, where you have a choice. Do I either put my light under a bushel, hide my convictions, hide my beliefs, not bear witness to the truth, or... Am I going to speak up? Am I going to confess the Lord Jesus when they are shaming me for doing so? When God's opinion is all that matters, that is when you know you have lost your life for Christ. And so the invitation to deny yourself and follow Jesus is an invitation to take up the most shameful sign there is, the sign of the cross. And the promise of the gospel is that if we are unashamed of the cross— unashamed of being identified with Christ and his outdated word, then we will win for ourselves glory, honor, and life immortal. Glory, honor, and life immortal for those who are unashamed. God will turn your shame into a more glorious resurrection than you can possibly imagine. Listen to what he says in Isaiah 61.3. I'll close with this. I will give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be 
glorified. The cross is the only tree of righteousness. And if you are planted on the cross with the Lord Jesus, united in his death, then you will be glorified and resurrected with him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, you know our pressure points. You know where we are tempted to be ashamed. And we ask that you would give us courage, that you would make your voice loudest in our ears, loudest than the, louder than the voice of our spouse, of our children, of our employer, of anyone. Make your voice loud in our ears. Make us to know your good pleasure and delight in us. Give us the fear of God that casts away evil, that we would fear no man and have the courage to stand in these evil days. We ask for this in Jesus' name, and amen. One of the ways that we can practice being unashamed of God's word is by learning to become more unashamed of associating with God's people. This communion meal is a public confession that all who uh, partake of Christ are one in Christ. All who eat this bread and drink this cup are one body together. Unlike the word of God, which is perfect and infallible, God's people are very imperfect and very fallible. We do embarrassing and shameful things all the time. And yet, despite our many failings, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his family. He is loyal to us. He is not embarrassed to forgive us again for our sin. In Hebrews 2.11, it says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. If Jesus is not ashamed of you, and you know the shameful things you have done, then you must not be ashamed to call everyone else here who partakes of this meal, brother or sister. These are your people. This is your tribe. This is your family. So come and partake together. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. A twofold charge. Children, Adam lived for 930 years. The second charge is this. Uh, Ask God to make you treasure and value him as he is really worth. Ask God to help you see, to give you eyes to see that he is infinitely more valuable than all this world put together. Receive now the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.